Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day folks, and as promised in this episode, we're off to the movies, but we're also, as Mikey said last week, we're going a bit to the dark side as well, because we're talking about that seminal movie, Birth of a Nation, and unfortunately you can't really talk about the movie without talking first about the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, so let's do a very quick history of the Klan, mate. Now it starts off in 1865, it's just one of many social clubs for ex-Confederate soldiers, Mm. but they're based in Pulaski, Tennessee. Right. After the Civil War, they organised against black suffrage. Look, there are violent attacks all over the South. As I mentioned before, there are various racist groups. But by 1868, they've sort of coalesced into the Klan under the leadership of the ex-Confederate general Nathan Bedford Forrest. And uh, I've heard that name, right? Yeah, that really ugly statue by the side of a highway that was taken down a few years ago. Yeah, Nathan Bedford Forrest, ex-Confederate general, first leader of the Klan. Now, as we know, they're oppressive, they are violent, they terrorise black society and educational facilities, and also towards the whole start of the hoods and the paraphernalia. Right. So apart from the obvious, Mikey, do they have any actual political goals? Yes, actually, mate. Their main objective during this period of time was a political goal. It was to stop the Republicans, who, let's not forget, was the party of Lincoln mm. in the 1868 elections. Right. Now, Grant's running as the Republican against a guy called Horatio Seymour, the Democrat. Okay. You know, we have to remember, too, that you had the Democrats controlled the South at this stage. Yes. And they didn't want any more Republican control. So their goal was to violently suppress Black votes. Mm. Sounds familiar. And there were actually some 2,000 recorded murders. Wow. But Grant does win. And in 1870 to 1871, he brings in the enforcement laws. Yes. Which they make it a crime to interfere with the registration, voting, office holding, or jury service of black Americans. Right. And there are 5,000 arrests across the South. Good. But it's the South. There's less than 1,000 convictions. Ah, right. But by the end of 1871, as a result of these laws... The Klan is starting to curb their activities, even though they are hard to enforce in the Klan. In the South, yeah, Yeah, yeah. got it. But that does get the ball rolling. So by 1882, the Supreme Court actually declares the Klan unconstitutional. Right, so that must sort of drive them underground. Yes, it does, man. Look, they're never quite wiped out, but they no longer exist as a viable entity. Good. Until Ah. 1915. Ah, right, which is the year of your movie, Birth of the Nation. Yes, there's a strong pocket of the Klan in Georgia, Mm. including a guy called William J. Simmons. Now, he's so inspired by the movie Birth of a Nation that he rents a bus Mm. with 15 other shit-wearing nutjobs, (laughs) and they light a wooden cross at Stone Mountain, Georgia, Ah. and the KKK is back. Right. It's it's wobbly at start, but it grows very rapidly. You're not going to believe this, but in 1920, they actually hire... PR experts. A woman called Mary Elizabeth Tyler and Edward Young Clark. Also, too, they expand their vitriol to attack Jewish people, Catholics, Mexicans, as well as Asians. Also, too, they are dead set against modern morality Mm. and they're strong backers of prohibition. And does that prove popular? Sadly, mate, yes. 
By 1925, the Klan's membership has grown. It's estimated to be in the millions. No one's quite sure, but mm. yeah, the lowest is 2 million and the top is 5 million. All right, so we're going to talk now about the movie, Birth of a Nation, because, Mikey, you reckon not only was the film instrumental in the rebirth of the KKK, but also that this key link has been deliberately glossed over in the intervening years for highly questionable reasons. In fact, as far as you're concerned, Birth of a Nation is long overdue a good kick in the head. Yes, mate. In fact, I studied Birth of a Nation at university as Mm. part of my film course, and you would watch lecturers they would tie themselves into intellectual pretzels trying to justify how such a vile film could be on the curriculum because it is actually a, a vile movie. Right. But also it's got all these supposed cinematic firsts. Right, and it's because of these much-heralded cinematic firsts that the movie has been given such a prominent place in the movie industry pantheon. Correct. But this is what I want to deal with today. Almost all of them are bogus. And look, I think it's absolutely imperative we see Birth of a Nation for the movie that it really is. And just for those who haven't seen the movie, Mikey, yeah, the basic premise is that African Americans have gained power in the South and this new regime is deliberately portrayed as incompetent, corrupt and chaotic. That's right, mate. It shows interracial rape and murder. It basically shows the South in tatters until the Klan rides in to save it. I mean, this isn't revisionist history, Paul. It's just plain stupid. And it's also tied in with that lost cause idea as well, isn't it, Mike? Very much, Paul. It pumps the tyres, that whole lost cause mythology that starts to overtake the South from the 1880s on. Mm. There was more to the Civil War than slavery. (laughs) Right. So here's the thing. For decades, supposedly well-meaning academics, like guys who taught me at university and and Mm. were guys, they've tried to balance out all this evil against its cinematic achievements. Sort of apologists. Yeah, exactly. Like It's pioneering. It's the first feature film. It's the first blockbuster. It has the first close-ups. It's the first movie shown in the White House. Right. Well, I decided to fact-check that. Let's go through all these great firsts of Birth of a Nation. Okay. Well, first off, the claim that Birth of the Nation was the first cinema feature film. Well, mate, at this point, most Australian film buffs would answer, hang on, hold my beer. Because (laughs) nine years before Birth of a Nation was inflicted on the world, Aussie filmmakers gave us the story of the Kelly Gang. Ah, the Kelly Gang movie, yes. 1906. 1906. Yeah, ran for six reels, mate. Ah. 80 minutes long. So it's a proper feature film then. Yeah, you can't just dismiss it as a short. Yes, mate. Plus there were numerous European films, particularly Italian features, that were not documentary but rather fictional tales, usually told in an epic style, and they've been on, on the movie screens going back to 1909. Right. But it was the first American feature film. Well, yes, mate, it is. If you don't count The Bargain, Brute Island, Cinderella, Judith of Bethulia, <laughs> The Magic Cloak of Oz, The Squaw Man and The Wishing Room. Ooh. All of whom I mentioned because they were released in 1914. Ah, the, the year before Birth of Nation. And here's a fun fact. Judith of Bethulia was actually directed and produced by D.W. Griffith. Oh, by him himself? So even he beat himself <laughs> with Birth of a Nation. Right. But you've got to give him the White House story, surely. Not even that, mate. And this is a point a lot of people get wrong. Even a newspaper as esteemed as the Washington Post have claimed it was the first blockbuster shown at the White House. But no, a year before, it was the Italian movie Cabaria. It was shown on an outdoor screening on the White House lawn in 1914. Nice. Birth of a Nation was shown six months later indoors at the White House. 
And I suppose there are some pedants who want to split hairs to say, you know, it has yeah. to be inside the White House to be. You know, as far as I'm concerned, if the Commander-in-Chief is watching it, it's being watched at the White House. And when you mention Commander-in-Chief, Mikey, yeah, if we're talking 1915, that must be what? That must be Woodrow Wilson, who himself did have a few failings, didn't he? Yes, he had quite a few problems with race relations, did old Woodrow. So was he one of the apologists? Actually, no, Paul, he wasn't. In fact, he wrote a letter after seeing it, and this is a direct quote, I have always felt that this was a very unfortunate production, and I wish most sincerely that its production might have been avoided, particularly in communities where there are so many, I hate to use this phrase, coloured people. So that's your whole movie kicked into the long grass then, Mikey? Oh, man, I'm not done yet. Yeah, the, the claim that I was the first to use the close-up and the panning shot. Well, oh, yeah. Actually, no. No, the first close-up comes from a 1901 comedy short, The Little Doctor and the Sick Kitten, which <laughs> features a child doctor and a, a sick kitten. <laughs> and the first panning shot, mate, goes back to that 1903 masterpiece. You would have seen this, The Great Train Robbery. Ah, The Great Train Robbery, of course, yeah. So that's over 10 years before. Oh, and Paul, do you want one last kicker? Go on. Birth of a Nation is actually based on a 1905 novel by a guy called Thomas Dixon. Right. Also, too, it became a play, and the title for the play and novel was The Klansman. <laughs> and right. And it, it is strident in its racial vilification. Okay, folks, so that's all the nails firmly hammered into the coffin of D.W. Griffiths and this week's Howler, his Birth of a Nation movie. Unfortunately, despite a surge in membership in the 20s, the KKK's peak didn't last much longer. Yes, except for that massive march in 1928 up Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, D.C. Ah, thousands of Klansmen. And here's the most embarrassing thing. They had the pointy hats, but they weren't even bothering to hide their faces. But that was the beginning of the end, though, wasn't it, Mikey? Because there was a backlash against the Klan. Membership numbers did drop, and that was exacerbated, wasn't it, when lists of members from the various chapters was leaked to the public. And on the face of things in the 30s, compared to what's happening in Europe, it seems that fascism and the right is on its decline in the USA. You know, you do get that Silver Legion popping up, but that doesn't really make much of an impact as a political group. And the KKK itself is bankrupt by the Second World War. So what's always interested me and what I wanted to have a look at today is why, when the fascists are on the rise in the old world, in Europe, is there this drop in the new world? Because, of course, you've got Mussolini. He's the first one, isn't he, in Italy after World War I. And then, of course, you've got Hitler in the 20s and 30s. You've even got Salazar in Portugal. And let's not forget Oswald Mosley in Britain. That's right. But you see, that got me thinking, Mikey. Maybe the fascists, the right weren't in decline in America at all. Perhaps instead they were more the fascists in disguise, a bit like Franco was in Spain. Because there is that interesting theory, isn't there? That just as the membership numbers for the KKK go down at the end of the 20s and about 2 million people fall off the membership list, at the same time, an uncannily similar number seem to have joined the National Rifle Association, the NRA. You're kidding me. All right, folks, so that's the early rise of the right in the USA in the 1920s and 30s. But what was it like here, Mikey, in Australia? Well, there were various right-wing groups all over the country, but probably the most famous is the New Guard. And they're best remembered these days from Captain de Groot. Ah, yes, the guy on the bridge. Yeah, upstaging Premier Lang as he cut the ribbon in the opening ceremony of the Sydney Harbour Bridge in 1932. Sure. 
But actually, Paulie, to find out the start of the new guard, you've got to go back a bit further. This may come as no surprise. You've got to go back to the old guard. <laughs> oh, God, right. Yeah, they sort of form around about 1915. No one's really sure because they're a secretive society pledged to empire and thwarting socialism in Australia. Right. They're mostly upper middle class and they are Protestant and very Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, but did they have any real power, any real influence? Yes, mate, because they actually had members in the Attorney General's office, mm -hmm. the upper echelons of the New South Wales Police Force, right. and also, too, in the Defence Department. They were very secretive, but it's estimated they had around about 30,000 members. And what sort of people would they get to join? Well, they were mostly ex-military, and this really kicks in after the end of World War One. Mm. In fact, one of the people that joins is an ex-army officer, and a, well, he's been described as a flamboyant Sydney lawyer and businessman. Guy called Eric Campbell. No, I've never heard of him. Now, well, Campbell joins the old guard, but he gets disillusioned with it. He bristles against their secretive nature, and he, he thinks it lacks a clear purpose. Right. Thinks it's administered very badly. So on March the sixteenth, nineteen thirty-one, he and a few others break away right. and form the new guard. Mm. So they claim to be a paramilitary organisation. Well, they're all ex-soldiers, and, and they start stockpiling weapons. And oh, mate, they love to do drills. Ah, a bit of square bashing. Yeah. Well, the idea is that they will rise up and take control once the communist revolution kicks in. <laughs> yeah, like that was ever going to happen. I know, mate. It sounds bizarre now, but it was enough to convince fifty thousand men to join, mm. including Australia's national hero, Sir Charles Kingsford Smith. Ooh. Now they clashed a lot with the trade unions. Yeah. They hated Labor and. Particularly, they hated Jack Lang, the Premier. The politician who's supposed to cut the ribbon on the bridge. Yes, indeed. They thought our Premier was a communist. Mind you, they thought anyone to the left of Genghis Khan was a communist. <laughs> yeah. And they wanted them all deported. Right. But here's something that does make me giggle. One thing Campbell really wanted, this Eric Campbell guy, was he wanted lovely snazzy uniforms like the fascist had in Germany and Italy. Yeah. But they could never raise enough funds to buy them. Ha! So we should take everything they did with a pinch of salt. No, mate. There were elements in the New Guard who were incredibly violent, often led by this guy, De Groot. Right. There was an incident in February 1932. There were 700 of them drilling in Belmore mm. when a, a curious media pack you know, just came along to film them. So mm. they attacked the media. Right. All through the May of that year, there were running street brawls between them and the trade unions all over Sydney. Mm. And strangely enough, 13 members of the New Guard were arrested in that, that hotbed of leftist politics, Coffs Harbour, yeah. after trying to break into a political meeting which they thought was far too left-leaning for their liking. Their constant claim was they were just there trying to help the police, despite the fact the cops were constantly saying, we don't want you anywhere near here. Okay, so that brings us back to the Harbour Bridge. But what was their beef with that, Mikey? Well, the new guard was incensed that the Premier, Jack Lang, was opening the bridge. Not the King's representative, the Governor, Sir Philip Gane. Right. And that's when you've got this guy, De Groot, charging in on his white horse. Yes, mate. And then after that, there's a manhunt, he's caught, he's brought before the judge, and he's fined. Good. No, just fined for offensive behaviour. Oh, well, and I suppose the rest is history. I wish it was, mate, but actually that things got more violent. In fact, there was a Trades and Labor Council secretary, a guy called John Jock Long. Now, he was viciously beaten by eight men dressed in KKK-style hoods. Right. And they're exposed to be members of the New Guard's fascist legion. Ah. Now, after this beating, public opinion swung hard against them and there were mass resignations sure. from the New Guard. What really did them in in the long run is, well, Lang gets removed from power and the guard has no one to rail against and they sort of become irrelevant. Ah, 
And so what happened to Campbell? Well, he goes off on a fascist package tour. <laughs> he goes to Europe. He visits Mosley in England. Right. And also to high-ranking fascists in Italy and Germany. Now, he comes back in thirty-five and forms what he calls the Centre Party. It runs in a few electorates around Sydney, but it fails miserably. And the whole thing just fades away. Yes, Paul, and that's sort of part of the problem when it comes to looking back at the New Guard. It's a combination of their own ineptitude and also to a very Australian trait to brush over our more extremist past mm. that we've almost looked back on them benignly as a combination of, like, the Freemasons meets a rowdy RSL club. <laughs> right. But... They weren't. And make no mistake about this. In 1933, Eric Campbell said in a press interview, we're not Italian fascists or German Nazis, but as far as the broad philosophy of fascism goes, I am a fascist to my fingertips. Well, there you go, folks. Well, I've certainly learned something today. So if you've got any questions... Or anyone who might have had an ancestor in the New Guard... Just drop us a line on all your social media, same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, on whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming, we're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps, there's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. And next week, Paulie, you're dishing up some flavour overload, something we both enjoy. A good curry. That's right, mate. But for this meal, it's all about who's doing the serving. Catch you all next week. Mm-hmm.